Hey, everybody. We're talking to Jenny Magic today. What an amazing woman. She helps leaders say no to unworkable work. What in the world is that? We're going to get into that. And she has some incredible stories about how to successfully navigate change. She's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this incredible conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Dallas Burnett, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber Chair in Thrive Studios. But more importantly, today we have a great guest. She is an author of a book called Change Fatigue. She's a speaker, an expert in tech adoption and employee engagement. Really excited. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> well, let's just jump right in because I am, the title of your book really was intriguing to me because I feel like it sums up how a lot of people in our culture and at work feel today, change fatigue. So tell us how you define that term, change fatigue, and what inspired you to write the book. Absolutely. So I have been a marketing strategist for almost 20 years and realized over the last five or so in and around the pandemic and coming out of it, we were seeing a lot of those strategies just stall out. A lot of organizations are having a really hard time encouraging their employees to get on board with whatever the new idea is. And so in that time period, I really wanted to shift my focus and give leaders a handbook for how to get their employees more excited about whatever it is that the organization is trying to move forward. And in that work, trying to uncover what's going on, it became really clear that we are in a very unique moment. We have a lot of pushback from employees. There's a lot of burnout. Morale is low. Employee engagement surveys are coming back with pretty dramatically lower marks than before. And leaders are really trying to figure out what to do about that. So this was our answer. My co-author, Melissa Brecker, and I come from change management and strategy backgrounds, really trying to give non-professional change management people a skill set that they can take into their everyday work. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that a lot. So I, I, do, I do think that when you get down to the root of it, like when you talk about employee engagement and how those numbers are lower today, I agree with that. And I think there's a lot of different reasons why, but I think that so many business leaders and business owners and coaches overlook that the value of engagement and all the ripple benefits that come with employee engagement. So it's really cool that you're unpacking it from the change fatigue. So let's talk about if I'm experiencing as a leader change fatigue, what does that look like? How does that look? If I'm going through, if I'm in an organization and I'm experiencing this, is there some signs or some symptoms or are there some yeah things that just will create change fatigue. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So it can look different in different organizations. It's dependent on your culture. In some organizations, we're seeing leaders really face active and vocal resistance to change initiatives. Mm -hmm. So you're, they're hearing like, why are we doing this? I think the way we've always done it is fine. Tell me more or pushing back. 
but more yes. often and more common, and especially in white collar work, knowledge work, where the work is happening between our ears as opposed to pumping out widgets, mm-hmm. the way that the response is, the way that change fatigue manifests is just in a slow, resistance, quiet pushback, sandbagging, mm-hmm. I like to call it. So the yes. employee may say, great, that seems like a great idea. I'll get right on that, boss. But then the kickoff meeting is delayed because of someone's travel plans. And then the next steps require, before you know it, there's a lot of plausible deniability, but nothing's really happened to move that initiative forward. And and that's where I get called in a lot. Leaders are frustrated. They said, everyone's smiling and saying the right stuff, but nothing is happening. What is going on? And that's where we uncover a lot of change fatigue. That, that buy-in's not there. You can just tell it. It's just not there. Yeah. And it's so funny. I love how you describe that. It's, there's a lot of there's a lot of plausible excuses that, oh, I couldn't do this or I'm traveling, but there's no energy behind it. There's no movement. There's nobody that picks that torch up like the Olympics coming up. Nobody takes it up and runs with it. It just dies right there. It just fizzles out. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of leaders have experienced that. So that's, again, I think that's why the title change fatigue is just really captures, captures some people because it definitely resonates in that way. So if I'm leading a team, do you have any examples where you've worked with people? Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll share one of mine first. I'll go first. We've had, we have a coaching system that we install to help leaders increase their engagement with team members. So they're going through this kind of coaching system. They have a scaffolding system for them to go through. And you sometimes inevitably we go into companies and it's exactly like what you just said. We'll have 30% of the people that are just completely pushing back. I don't know this thing's just, they just, whatever reason it lands on them. And it's, you've got 30% of the people that's, yes, this is what I've waited for all my life. Yes, we get it. And then you've got the middle ground. And I feel like that's where the battle is. Even some of obviously the ones that are pushing back. So if I'm going in, how would you coach an organization like that? How, what, as a leader, if I'm leading that team, what are some of the things that I can do to navigate that difficult situation? Absolutely. So I think the first thing leaders need to do is put on a mindset that understands that resistance is a natural human reaction to a change in the status quo. So I think a lot of leaders, when they encounter any resistance, they, I don't want to say they take it personally, but they take it as an actual commentary on the change. What it's, in fact, it's actually just a commentary on any change. So you're going to have the natural response that you're going to need to sit with, let it be okay, validate, but not take it as a deterrent to moving the project forward, if it, especially if it's an essential project. I think the other key thing is really making sure you're solving the right problem. So a mm-hmm. lot of the times when I see an initiative face the kind of resistance and, and encounter the change fatigue that we're talking about, have a hard time building buy-in, it's because the people on the ground don't fully believe that this problem needs solving or that it needs solving now. They may perceive this as a problem that only impacts management and therefore I'm being asked to do a bunch of work to make someone else's job easier. They may perceive the benefit as not being worth the urgency for the problem. There's lots of ways that we can unpack that. But I think the most important thing you can do to make sure that people understand that you're solving the right problem is have what we call in the book confidential inquiry. This is just a a cone of silence conversation. I imagine that the Maxwell smart gets smart cone where it comes (laughs) down and descends over the dialogue. And in some organizations, this can't be with their manager or their boss. It needs to be like with an outside person that they trust. But basically being able to hear authentic feedback when someone says, look, I know you're telling me that we need Mm. to do this, but I'm telling you that we've tried this five times in the last 15 years that I've been here 
and it's flopped every time and I don't see what's different. Or every mm. single time we try to do something like this, they won't put the budget behind it at the very last minute or, right? There's things within your employees' beliefs and expectations that are going to color how they receive a change. And so to the extent yes. that you're able to allow them to voice that and be heard and validated and say, we hear you, but this time is different and here's why, that's yes. a huge first step to make sure everyone agrees this problem needs solving and it needs solving now. And this solution that we're going to pursue is something that, that you should at least show up for as opposed to dismissing and resisting. I love that idea of confidential inquiry. I think that's really cool. And I think that what you're going for is whatever it takes to get that team member that you're leading to be honest. That's really what we're talking about is we're going, when we say confidential, it's not, however, I need to pull you out of this situation where you you can talk. It's not going to be a room of 30 people where nobody raises their hand and everybody's like, yeah, I got it and walks out the door. You're taking them off to the side. It may not even be to the manager, but you're getting somehow you have got to cut through the static and get to the real heart of what that employee is thinking, because then you can start addressing the movement. I also love how you talked about giving them a chance to voice their beliefs. We have a saying, we call it for our coaches that we are training in the system. We call, we say one of their, one of their jobs is to battle for belief. You battle for that belief. And I like it because you're describing the same situation. We're going to pull you out of the normal environment. If we need to put you with a separate person, we are going to find out, A, what you believe first. To battle for belief, you got to know what, you're going to, what you believe. And then the second thing is we're going to validate your belief by at least addressing it. It may not be that we share the belief. You know, you may say, well, we've never put the budget behind it. And we're, we know because of all of our strategy meetings, we've just allocated like 10 times the amount of budget that we've ever allocated to it, right? You may not know that. So now just by saying, I hear what you're saying, I validate that belief, you're right. We haven't put the budget behind it. And then coming back with some kind of a solution or response that addresses it. I think it not only, I think it not only validates their belief, but it also would increase trust because you've actually acted on something that you've heard. So just sitting there and listening and then taking that feedback and giving it Have you seen that to be yeah, the case? Absolutely. And I think goodwill and trust and engagement are what a lot of employee employer relationships have been built on in the past. And we've really mm -hmm. seen that damaged in a lot of the ways that things were handled as we like went remote, came back hybrid, everybody's trying to figure out how to work in this new environment. I think there is a gap in inherent trust. And so anything mm. leaders can do to be a little bit vulnerable and that vulnerability might be as simple as you're right. We didn't put the budget behind it last time. Just admitting the realities that everyone knows. A lot of organizations have a really hard time with anything other than perfect press, right? They don't want to say anything in any meeting to any employee that might say, yeah, we were wrong. We didn't do it perfectly last time. And that is a, an opportunity for leaders that are willing to go there. And it is yes. a, uh, a huge fast forward button towards that trust. If you mm. can let your employees be on the same team. I like to talk about being on the same side of the table. Mm. We all know what it's like when you go in and ask for a raise. You're on one side and they're on the other and there's a negotiation happening, right? But mm -hmm. true teams sit on the same side of the table. They look at the paper from the same direction and they work together. Yes. A lot of change right now is being handled across the table. The leader slides yes. the change across and the employee accepts it or pushes back. Yes. To the extent that we can get on the same side of the table, we can really start to see that buy-in come naturally and authentically. But it takes a leader stepping away from their position of power, coming mm -hmm. around to the side of the table, sitting down with their team 
and truly yes. talking about what it is we're trying to do. One of the ways that we, the mindset I feel like leaders have is the one that they've been brought up in and trained in. And that's this a win, a lose situation. Like my job as a leader is to make this budget or make this, if I'm owning the company is to get this. And if I can get you to work for your job as little as I can, and then you're on the other side getting to get as most as you can from me. And it's just this adversarial, just like you said, across the table, what I've seen it, you can flip that on its head. Like you said, come to the same time of the table. And what I see there is the leader or the owner saying, I absolutely want you to make more because if you are, you're contributing more, you're giving more, you have more resources that you're giving, you have more expertise that you're giving, you're creating more on the team. And therefore, if you're contributing more, I'm overjoyed to pay you more. I'm overjoyed. Our production's going up. Our performance is going up. Why can't I? It, it's a win-win in that situation. But it's sometimes, I think, hard because, again, going back to understanding what the employee believes, we're addressing some of those issues. We're having to be transparent. We may have to be more transparent than we've been in the past about the numbers and whatnot. Also, are we willing to do the work to go see what that position is being compensated outside of our organization? And so that we can be fair and know that we're doing and then really be clear about those jobs and expectations. And I think that if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to do the work on the front side, you can sit on the same side of the table and you can be there. You can cheer for them, which again, I think goes to your point of in being in an environment now where trust is not, it's lacking and it's an absolute competitive advantage if you can instill it and grow it. And yeah, yeah I love that. I love that. We're asking our employees to show up for the company, but we have to show up for them, right? Yes. There's that balance. And that's really, yes. I think when, if you can get there and change projects often present a really nice opportunity to leave the status quo and do a little project differently than you've done something before. It can be yeah. a, an experiment and a reset. I love that. I love that. That's really good. That's very good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about if you've been in, what's one of the most, I would say, what's, is there any particular change that you found? And I don't know that, is there any particular change, organizational change in your experience that seems to be more difficult to navigate than other types of change? All change is hard, but is there any that you've experienced on the, on the organizational or the team level that seemed to really be difficult, the most difficult for team members to navigate. I do. I think there's a category of work that doesn't often get the same level of scrutiny that often runs into to trouble. I like to call this unworkable work. Unworkable work is work that is either not necessary or not achievable in this moment. And what I mean by that, or the category of work that this fits is often internal improvement projects or mm. optimization projects. So this is, we've always used Excel to keep track of our sales leads, but we need to shift to a CRM or we've always used this process to approve content out in the marketing team, but we want to up that and put it through a different system, a different process. We want to reorg this team so they can be more efficient. So these are the kind of um, optional process and technology changes that are intended to improve things over the long term, but may be really hard for people to understand and can be very disruptive in a way that I think a lot of leaders don't fully account for how disruptive it is to not only stop doing work in one system or process and start doing it in a different system or process, but learn a new tool or process and make the mental shift to do things a new way all while keeping the existing plate spinning and the existing work going out the door. So I think that the challenge most often shows up for these kind of optional things where the employees are like, that is a ton of disruption. The benefit mm -hmm. won't show up for 18 months and you're yes. expecting me to do that in budget season? What yes. the heck? No, yes. thank you. I don't want anything <laughs> to do with that. 
I'm laughing because I've experienced this personally. We rolled out a system at an organization. It was an IT custom build, and it was it was just transformational in the sense that it was allowing all this different information to be talk across. But it's exactly what you said. It was unbelievably painful for the first six months. I mean, just to the point where some people were like, we're not doing this, you know? And it's like, no, you have yeah. to phase over, but it's going through a busy season and they're already stressed because their workload's high. And then we're launching this new thing and they're supposed to keep doing these projects that, that was already in the old way this way, but there are any new projects coming in there. And man, it was, it was brutal. I have so much respect for the team because they grinded through it. And we had to do a lot of what you're talking about, these confidential inquiries, pulling people aside. Hey, you know, where are you at? But then you, you, once you get through that and you get to the other side a year later, it was right before COVID. And had they not done that before COVID, I, I don't know what would have happened. So they were very appreciative at the end. But man, sure. that was, I was awful. It was awful. It was hard. And I so, think yeah. a recent Gartner study said that the average employee faced 10 of those planned enterprise changes in 2022 up from two in 2016. So that is a 10 times increase in eight years. I think two things are true. You could do it the way your team did it, but know that you don't get very many of the, I call them change tokens. You don't get very many change tokens <laughs> to ask your people to go through that kind of hell. You just That's don't. true. That's true. Or, so you either need to slow the number of things you're asking. You can do that once every few years and ask people yes. to just suck it up and have the worst six months of their life. Yes. Or, you can compensate for the balance. You can figure out what work do they usually do that can get outsourced or paused mm. or what can we take off their plate that is not mm. absolutely, if this project has to be absolutely essential, what is it that only they can do? And can I hire part-time support? Can I pause standard reporting things that don't change our day-to-day? -day? What can we pause or take off their plate in order to make room for this awful thing that we're asking them to do? So reduce the amount of change, reduce the workload so that they can focus on change and or do whatever you can to smooth the rest of the ecosystem to make this more palatable, right? I love that approach because again, you're just being very intentional. And I think as as leaders in an organization or leaders on a team, if you do ask the change out, yeah, we totally finished that. And we just were like, we're not doing nothing for this period of time because we just need everything to normalize and everybody to be like, oh, and, I, and that right. it literally, you could feel it. You could feel the need for that organizationally. I think one of the things that you have to do on the front side, just what you said, you have to pay attention because you have to do one of those, one of the two. You have to either say, I'm going to make these things easier for everybody at work by what can I do and pull things off or share load or pull people in or add extra consultants or whatever it is, or do what you just said, which just, you, you can only make so many asks. I was speaking on a burnout and with a large financial service organization who will remain nameless at this point in time, but they were going through, if you're listening to the last 10%, you know who you are, but they were going through and are currently going through this major system rollout, similar to what you just said. I was on this Zoom type call and <clears throat> was, but what was talking about burnout and we got to the end and there were so many people that were literally emotional and one lady just, just, just absolutely bawling on the phone because they're changing the system. And you go you st from the outside, you're like, from the outside, it's just really easy. And especially for leaders, if you're disconnected, it really is a bad thing because you're, if you're not in it and you're not experiencing that same level of change, you might take a look at that and say, 
what is she so upset about? What is her problem? Did you hear her getting all emotional just because we're changing the computer system? And yet for her, it's her daily. It's like what she, when she walks into work on that morning at eight o'clock, she logs into that system and then she walks in it all day. And so her day just went from normal to absolutely a mess every day for, and that is if you get it right, you might get through it in so many months. Right. So it's just, it's so true. I think what you're saying is exactly it's on point. And I think that what's some of the dangers like, cause I see one of the dangers is a leader being disconnected and seeing that person and not having empathy for them because they only see the upside. Is yeah. there other pitfalls that leaders tend to fall into as they go through these things? There are. I just want to say one thing about that one though, in particular, I think one of the things that leaders really need to think about is the amount of privilege, I guess is the best word for it, that they had through the pandemic. A lot of the leaders we work with are frustrated with how their employees are showing up for these change projects. But when we start talking about what their employees did to keep the company afloat during the difficult times that we've all been through, in a lot of cases, these employees faced complete uncertainty, not knowing if their job would exist, not knowing if the company would exist. And there were some extraordinary measures in terms of moving their life, work-life balance around to survive the pandemic. The outcome was a lot of organizations, unless you were in hospitality and retail, a lot of tech companies, financial companies, like actually came out on the positive. The books looked good. And a lot of leaders were able to insulate themselves from some of the worst changes just because of where they sit in the organization and what their role is. I'm not saying it was easy to lead through a Mm -hmm. pandemic. There were some tough Mm -hmm. decisions. But I think in terms of the grind that you're describing, mm-hmm. the pandemic was the grind for a mm-hmm. lot of mid, mm-hmm. mid-tier employees. So they are they have been doing that for a period of years. And yes. in a lot of cases, we've gotten, 2023, most of our executives said, great, now that's over. Let's grind. Let's change <laughs> some things. And everybody went, what are you talking about? We need a break. We need a, we, we need, need a that period of time where nothing changes. We need that. And yes. I think if, if leaders don't understand that, that they were in that state and they need a pause before they can yeah. get back in that state, then it helps explain a little bit of some of this resistance that I think a lot of leaders are like, nobody, nobody wants to work. I'm getting all this resistance, quiet quitting. It's, yes. well, yeah, we haven't given them a, a real pause and a thank you, a validation yeah. for what yeah. happened, what we had to deal with. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. ThinkMove Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational. And we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. 
It reminds me of this. We had a, a PGA a golf coach on the show a couple, I guess it was a couple of years ago now. And he made a comment ab- about burnout. And it was interesting because he was associating it with physical workouts and mental burnout with these golf players. And he says, stress does not create burnout. And I was like, oh, that's like a misnomer. You would think it would. I think stress creates burnout. He goes, no. He goes, stress you know, gets you going. It makes your sense, makes you more aware, makes you actually pr- produce more. But he said, stress without recovery is what will give you burnout. He said, if you go and work out and you're stressing your muscles, that's what helps your muscles grow. You push it, you get better, you get stronger, you get faster. But if you don't recover, that is when you just go max out every day. Well, then you're going to tear your muscles and be a a hot mess. So I thought that was so true. And it goes along the lines of what we're saying. I think it's easy because the whole COVID thing just, it just wrecked everybody in terms of just your personal life was all messed up because you couldn't go to the grocery store without certain things. And your kids were home from school if they normally went to school and you're trying to figure that out. And then your boss is calling you, you know, are you coming into the office today? Are you staying home today? Who's got COVID? It was just a mess. And so you come out of that. And then, but the, in, in a lot of leaders minds, I do, I think it would be easy to assume that, well, that was COVID. That's not our business. I mean, it's like, yeah. <laughs> Well, it kind of all goes together. You know, if, if a lot of employees were having to do hybrid work or want to do hybrid work or having to shift their whole work life around and doing all these things differently, it is that change, even though it wasn't something that we as leaders wanted or necessarily yeah. thought we created, still is the reality of the situation. Yeah. So I think that's really good. So if you're seeing in your organization, if you listen to the last 10%, if you lead a team, and or if you lead an organization, I think it's important if you're seeing, if you're not seeing the engagement numbers that you want, or you're seeing your turnover levels increase, I think you need one of the questions you need to be asking yourself is how are you giving your team members the opportunity to recover from the last couple of years of a lot of change? And are you thanking them? Just like you said, are you recognizing them for the hard work that they put in and doing that? Yeah, that's really good. I like that. So let's talk a little bit about hybrid work because it is so much more prevalent now. So many more teams are moving to that. So how about hybrid work strategies? What do you recommend? What have you seen this worked good? Because we've gone through this change for team cohesion and employee engagement in these hybrid teams. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that it's not so much hybrid that's causing the problem. It's just that we have to think differently about things that used to happen organically, because we know that relationships in proximity are easier to build. And so if we're not in proximity, we're not building relationships, which just means we need to be a lot more thoughtful about our communication strategy. So one of the things I like to challenge leaders to do is look at the concept of psychological safety. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but um, Dr. Amy Edmondson has spent 20 years at Harvard figuring out what makes a great team. And Google did their own study in 2008, what makes a great team, Project Aristotle, same outcome, right? They basically have all come around this concept of psychological safety. And what it boils down to is, can my team tell the truth to each other? Can Mm -hmm. we be honest and navigate mistakes? Do we have a great attitude towards risk and failure? Do we, are we on the same side of the table? Is there inclusion and willingness to help out? So if there's a simple seven question free assessment and at fearlessorganization.com, that's Amy Edmondson's website um, that I think leaders need to look at because the idea of building, for example, how do we make open conversation? That's the, this idea of confidential inquiry is built on open conversation. How do we get to a place where people can say the real thing openly? Yes, yes. If your team has 
real, has meeting conversations and then has side of the desk conversations where there's different (laughs) storylines, then you have some work to do. Something like 78% of leaders overestimate psychological safety in their team. And this is something you can have everyone take your survey and get a benchmark. You can see a number on a chart and see where you have opportunity to grow. And I think there's some real value in being thoughtful. How do we have open conversation when the side of the desk conversation, when someone, when Jill used to go to Jane's cubicle after the meeting and have a little powwow about what we really think, yes. what's, how's that happening now? And was that healthy? And do we need to have opportunities where we call a town hall and then we go break into breakout rooms three and have, what are you really thinking conversations? And then we come back and we read out and we talk about what we really think about an idea because it is just so hard you know, in a real meeting, you twitch your finger and the boss goes, oh, Jenny has something to say. And it yeah. flows organically. And it's super hard to monitor that kind of body language on Zoom. And so even just the simple things like really trying to focus on how do we become a team that says what we mean and can have honest feedback and authentic feedback, that's probably the most the most essential one as it relates yes. to hybrid work. But it's just something that used to happen organically. And I think a lot of leaders They would be like, everyone just come back to the office. We'll make it work. But it's actually not hard to do this in a hybrid environment. It just has to be intentional, right? It just has to be intentional. Yeah. And I think that's so true. It reminds me, it's like, that totally makes sense. When you said the 78% of leaders overestimate psychological safety or the psychological safety levels in the organization. And here's why. How would you know if this not? Because that's the right. thing that they're not talking to you. Nobody's raising their hand going, I, I don't feel safe. The reason is they don't feel safe. So why would they raise yeah. their hand and tell you that? You don't know because nobody's going to tell you. And so I think and that leaders, to your point, by the definition, they are probably psychologically safe. They probably can speak their mind. They probably yeah. do feel included and that their point of view is heard. Yeah, it's because you're sitting in a spot in the org chart that allows for that. And you have to and be thoughtful f- about people that are not. I think that the, to your point, I think it's, you should be asking yourself, you're listening today and you're thinking about, and you're leading a team. If you're coaching a team, if you own an organization, you don't need to be saying, well, do I, the wrong question in my mind is this. The wrong question is, what do I think the level of psychological safety is in my organization? Because as a leader, you are absolutely hardwired to not get that right. In fact, we know that most likely whatever your number is, it's not right. It's actually 78% is over. So I would say the, the better question is, what are the ways that I can absolutely point to that I am being intentional in creating that? And let's look at the ways that we can create it and how, which one, and if I can't point to some really specific things, and one of them might be getting anonymous feedback, like you said, finding some type of confidential inquiry, whether that's in an assessment or an outside person coming in, whatever that is, but how are you doing these activities that's going to generate that and do the right things first? So I think the wrong question is just seeing where the wind, but oh, yeah, I think it feels good. Yeah, it's good. I think that's the wrong way. The right way is just to really be intentional about laying out specific ways in which you're helping promote that in the environment. And I think that's where you win. So I, I really like that. I would like to go back because you dropped a couple terms that I want to, I want to unpack a little bit. You talked about, unworkable work and internal improvement. And then you went right into the example. And I want to back up just a little bit and say, we've talked about change fatigue. And so how does that relate to the term that you used unworkable work? And then let's, and then how does that relate to internal improvement? 
Absolutely. So in unworkable work is just a phrase I use for a project we should have said no to. There's mm. a lot on the agenda. And the, my definition is something that's either not necessary or not achievable in this moment. And of course, those terms are subjective, uh, necessary according to who, achievable according to who. But right. I think what I'm really getting at is when the people who are going to be impacted by that change, the people who are being asked to manage and implement that change, believe that it is not necessary or not achievable, it's unworkable. Yes. And there isn't any amount of yes. prodding that you can do as a leader until you change their minds about mm. those factors, right? Mm. And so a lot of a lot of projects get kicked off. And the reason I talked about internal improvement projects is when we think about all the kinds of change an organization can bring forward, it can be, hey, we're rolling out a new product or service. Hey, the way that we do business, we're going to fundamentally shift what we sell or how we sell it. Those to me are essential, kind of non-negotiable, top priority projects. Those tend to have a lot of scrutiny. They have to pass a really high bar. They have a lot of planning. They have a lot of investment in their planning in terms of making sure we get it right. There's customer research and there's rollout plans, right? The kind of projects mm -hmm. that drift into unworkable work and are really susceptible to triggering change fatigue and burnout are the next tier of projects that are this internal improvement project. They're seeking to squeeze a little more productivity out of the team. They're seeking to organize materials in a more coherent way. They're seeking to centralize processes that have been diverse or, or knock down silos between teams. I think a lot of employees would say, yeah, that'd be great if I didn't have to do it. It's a great idea, yeah. but like, where yeah. are we going to fit that in? Yes. And so until you can convince them that it is necessary right now, and achievable, that we're going to support it in the way it needs to be supported until they believe that it's unworkable and you're going to have an uphill battle, Sisyphusian, you know, pushing that rock up and having it roll back yes. down on you until yes. you can encourage them. And a project that starts out that way can shift. This is a mindset shift. You can take your people on. But yes. I think a lot of times we leaders tend to use our rational brains to try to shift the necessary and achievable mindset when in fact this is an emotional thing all change is emotional all change is lost mm -hmm. like the woman on the yes. call who yes. was in tears about her status quo it is hard no matter even if we're moving towards a good thing we're moving to being childless to celebrating our first child you're leaving behind your life without kids right it, yes. even if you want to go in the direction of the thing there's a loss and so acknowledging yes. the loss acknowledging the transition period Acknowledging how much time it takes to adjust to a new thing is essential for any change, especially a change that someone really doesn't understand why they're having all this impact being foisted on them. And so to the extent that we can go, yeah, I laid out the logical case for this change. I'm getting some resistance. Let me slow down and listen to what they're feeling. Are they feeling like we've done too many concurrent changes? This one might be a great idea, but there's too much other stuff going on. Is it the wrong time? Do they feel like we're not going to put the right resources behind it? Or one team's going to bear the burden more than one team does the work and the other team gets the credit? Like that's a, a common problem that leads to this unpacking and this problem. So being able to understand that the folks who are impacted deserve to be heard and they need to believe it's necessary and achievable so that we can move forward with some sort of same side of the table strategy. I agree with that so much. And I love how you describe the acknowledging the change and even loss in that. But just saying, hey, look, I'm in this transition period and I lost that. And that is sad because I there was there was things about that I really enjoyed 
And there's wonderful things of what's coming, but there's always trade-offs, right? I don't think, I don't think organizations do a good job of that. I, right. At least the ones that I've experienced and worked in or consulted with. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times it's that, that the person felt like they were good at it the old way. Yeah. We're about to yeah. take them on a journey where at least yeah. for a period of time, they're going to be real bad at it. So they went from yeah. being an expert in the old system and the old process and they, people knocked on their door and asked for advice. Yes. Now they're in a situation where they don't have the first clue how the new thing works. They feel dumb. They feel unappreciated. They feel like their yeah. historic value has been diminished. Yes. And those are things that like that social capital in a knowledge organization is a real resource. So oh my goodness. Yeah. Some of these transitions take social capital from people in ways that leaders have a really hard time seeing and acknowledging. Mm. Someone always used to be the linchpin of an old way of doing something and now it's distributed. It may be way more effective, but that person is going to have a really hard time adapting to this new way of their social capital being diminished. I have such, so many examples come to my mind when you say that, because I've just had so many different experiences like that. But that same system that where I was telling you example about before, it was years ago when we did that, but we had one of the guys that we were automating certain attributes of his job. Now he had done this for like 20 years. There's no way that we're capturing his brain and all the nuance there and experience there. But he was so anti the project and just was not giving information was not being and he we really needed him to be a part of it finally it just came down like dude what is the deal like why and he finally got to voice his honest belief and it was his honest belief that we were trying to take this system and create this automated process to replace him and we're like Oh, no, no, no. You don't even get it. Like that's not even in the same ballpark. We're not even in the same state. We're trying to take this to free you up to do more of what you love that's adding even more value and take you out of these repetitive things that you don't even like doing anyway. But he didn't see that. He saw the loss. When we don't know, we typically fill in the details with the negative. That's just human nature. You know, and so he's going and filling in the details and th in his mind, he's sitting there going, they're doing this. They're going to just do this. And then once they I've, I help them build this thing, they're going to fire me. And we're sitting there on the other side going, man, if he helps us build this thing, think of how much farther he could go. But I think that to your point, we have got to improve as leaders. But I think we're really not so good, especially visionaries, not so good at looking back. I think that's one of the things that, that catches is not being able mm -hmm. to say and have empathy for the person in that moment and say, look. We get it. This is where you were and we still value you, but it's not going to feel like that for a while. Here's why you're going to learn this new thing. It's going to be even better, but we understand there's a process and just really speaking to that and acknowledging the loss, you know, um, yeah. that's really good. All right. So we've talked about unworkable work, which when we talk about that, you talked about like almost like tier B projects within an organization. It's that tier B. So there's no focus and intensity. Uh, I think that's you either have to decide, no, we're going to put that on there. We're, here's how we're going to carve out the time to do it and put more focus on it, or we're going to say, hey, pause until we get some more bandwidth. So that's really good. Yeah. Unworkable work. I like that. I love it. There's a maxim. Little's law states that as work in progress increases, as the number of projects we have active at any given time increases, our ability, our throughput decreases. Mm. So I think it's really important for leaders to think about those tier B projects as detractors from the focus on the tier A projects. And also that that these internal improvement projects, whatever they are, reorganizing the factory floor, putting a new project management system into place, those things are competing with each other. Mm. And so a smarter way to do things is to have a relatively high bar for what we're going to do right now. So instead of mm. six to 10 projects over the next 18 months, slowly grinding it out, 
Are there three or four that we can put at the top of the list, give them a little more resources, a little more attention, a little more throughput, and then achieve some success. And on the Mm. back of that success, we are able to launch the next few set of internal improvements. Also, we're going to know a lot more three months or six months in when we launched the second set of projects than we did when we launched the first one. Having all of this concurrent work, which I'm seeing a lot of organizations have, there's org-wide HR level improvement, there's team level improvement, there's breaking down silos and communication and collaboration across team improvement. There's just so many improvement projects simultaneously taking attention that, that I think a smart leader goes, what can we pause? What can we, how can we stack success? So that these guys really feel, you know how you win trust and rapport and goodwill? You say, hey, everybody, that thing you've been dreading, we're putting it on pause. You will get applause and and a sigh (laughs) of relief. And people go, oh, they they get it. Thank goodness they get it. I love that. It is so true. The more, the more, you know, the more different competing initiatives you have. Yes, throughput. It makes total sense because they are competing. Even though you're on the same team, those activities are not competing with each other, competing with the time. You've only got so many hours in the day and you've got to get this work done. And so I do think that it forces the leader to prioritize what's most important. And so having that mission, vision, values and purpose and really having clarity on why we're doing what we're doing, and then what are we focused on as an organization? How can we align with that is so much more important because everything else is static. Everything else is just lowering your productivity. And I think that is unworkable. Yeah, it's unworkable because like you said, if you've got six or eight, nine, 10 projects going at one time and you're grinding it out for six or eight months, that is in, that is like inevitably generating change fatigue. However, if I shorten the number of projects, I finish those faster and I have success. That's not change fatigue. That's, that is confidence building. We just, we just had a pizza party, you know, let's go. We're, we're invincible. We can do this. Let's bring on the next one. That's momentum. And, and, it's, and at the end of the day, you might be able to do about the same number of projects, but it, the feel of when you get to the finish line of all of them is totally different. So I love that. That's really good. Well, Jenny, this has been a fantastic discussion today on change management and just how we manage through change fatigue, how we need to be aware of unworkable work. You've given us some things like, I love how you talked about 78% of leaders don't, and they overestimate psychological safety, how we need to get people to have a confidential inquiry on some different things as we go through change. I love how we talked a little bit about how we have to acknowledge the loss and change. So, I mean, just fan- fantastic discussion. So we always, we always end the show a couple of ways. First of all, let's talk about where can people find change fatigue and where can they find you if they want to get and reach out to you about more discussions about change and where can they find I love you? it. Both of those answers are changefatigue.com where you can find the book. We have a quiz. What kind of change leader are you? Are you a visionary that has trouble slowing down and getting in the weeds or are you someone that really wants to dive right in? There's also a really affordable online course if your team is struggling with this and needs some templates to actually start applying this to a specific project. And of okay. course, the contact form gets me on the other end of that. So I would always love to, to talk to folks. Um, yeah. All right, great. So we'll put those in the show notes. And the last question we always ask every guest is, who would you like to see or hear on as a guest on the last 10%? That is a great question. Um, you know who immediately pops to mind is Mel Robbins of the High Five Habit. She is such an inspiring 
leader who does a really nice job, I think, of threading the needle between the kind of actionable tactical stuff that I know leaders are used to seeing in their business books with the sort of emotional context that I'm trying to bring forward, which is in knowledge work, you're buying what's between their ears and that is tangled up with their humanity and their feelings. (laughs) And, you know, as long as we're working with humans, we got to be human as well. So yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. Mel Robbins, we will, we will reach out and see if we can get her on the show. That would be, yeah, I know. Fingers crossed. Who knows? You never know. So we've had some amazing guests so far. And so that would be, that'd be fun. That'd be a fun episode. Well, Jenny, thank you again for all the work that you do, for caring for people, for really seeking to make changes in organizations and help people move through change. Well, we appreciate you and thank you for being a guest on the last 10%. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.